Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb, and we have some Theros Beyond Death standard to talk about. We're just going to get right in there with a tier list, and Brian, the set is not even out yet. How the hell are we doing a tier list? Also, is this relevant? Does it matter? Someone's got to do it, Gerald, and we are the ones to step up because there's no tournament action right now. I mean, we've been spoiled the last few sets, usually in the Fandom Legends, Twitch Rivals type sphere with some really top tier competition going at it, sometimes the day of the set release, and that allowed us to very quickly establish a metagame. No such luxury this go around for Theros, so somebody has to step up and solidify the metagame. You and I are going to do it. We're going to take our best shot. Who knows if we get it right. But I, I've basically been living on the ladder. I have a pretty good sense of what people are playing and a very good sense, I think, between checking in on the Arena Decklist Twitter account and just talking to a bunch of people who are sitting at High Mythic. I have a very good sense of what's winning as well, I think. Yeah, I, I think I'm in about the same spot as you where I am very tuned in and paying attention to the things that people are talking about. And it just seems like that further drives me down the rabbit hole, right? Where it's like, ooh, that does seem like a sweet idea. I want to try that. But ultimately, it all kind of circles back to, all right, these are the decks that are very clearly a little bit better than everything else. And then there's a huge scrum for like tier two and tier three, I think. Uh, The tier two is so so deep. And I also think the gap between tier one and tier two is a little tighter than it's been in the past. Not to say there isn't a difference between tier one and tier two. There certainly is, but it does feel like these tier two decks are super, super close and probably are going to be really good metagame calls at specific points throughout the format. And maybe with some refinement, we'll just push their way into tier one. Yeah, I agree with that too, because a lot of the stuff for even the tier one decks, right? Like these are the strategies that people have really latched onto in the mm-hmm. first few days of it being released on Arena. Like Mono Black Devotion is one of those where the the lists that we started with are not what the lists look like currently. And a lot of that is to do with the fact that people have actually been working on them a bunch and refining them. And that hasn't right. necessarily been the case with a lot of the, two, the tier two stuff. Yeah, it's just finding its footing. In a lot of cases, I think there's people who don't even know about some of the Tier 2 stuff and just how good it is. We're doing our best to get the word out there, tweeting about them, sharing information on the decks so they start proliferating. But without a body of results, it is going to take a little bit more time this go around. It's been a lot of fun. I'll say that. I like things being a little bit more wide open and having some space to experiment a little bit more. I don't know if I want to do it this way every single time, but as a change of pace, it's been cool. Yeah, I've played against some wild stuff, and it's like, I don't know, it just it, it gets to a point where I'm just like, is is my opponent on to something? And then, you know, their deck just kind of like crumbles and falls apart, and I'm just like, oh, no, 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 okay. You know, like, they, they had like this one cool interaction, but ultimately, yes, their deck is a worse version of this other thing. But you end up running into cool things like that a lot more often because there hasn't been a tournament that's like, oh, hey, Simic Food is the best deck just right off the bat. Yep, for sure. So uh, let us get into the tier one, and I'm going to start with basically a, a deck that I, I, I guess I first saw like you post about. I know that there were a lot of people who were also working on it, and this is 
basically revamped version of Azorius Control, which has maybe shifted more into mid-range territory. There are a lot of new enchantments, the sagas, Thirst for Meaning, cards like Dream Trawler. What does your current list of this deck look like? Well, so that's actually a really hard question to answer because I, I just wrote about this deck over on Star City and I focused more on the mid-range approach that I was playing early on in the format. And I still love that deck. I was winning a ton with it, have no real beef with it. All of my reasons for wanting to go mid-range, I still think are valid. I can talk a little bit more about those after I get through this assessment. But I'm also now playing the more controlling version. And this is a list I saw it tweeted about by a friend of mine from the Northeast area, Max Mitchell, but he credited the deck to Gabe Nassif. And it was just a a more controlling build of blue-white without the Archon of Sun's Grace in the kind of mid-range spot, but for Elspeth defies death is that the right name of the card why am i blanking on conquer's death conquer's death jeez old brain and new sets not mixing no Uh, i should probably fix that before i go do commentary in richmond next week we'll get over that in the next uh eight days or so i'm sure eight days is a lot of time so elspeth is gonna conquer decks yeah a lot of time plenty plenty of time left in the old tank four copies of that card and four copies of narset which i actually think is really really cool with Elspeth Conquer's Death, because you get three activations from your Narset, you're happy burning it early. Obviously, there was already Teferi that you were bringing back, and Archon, and of course, Dream Trawler. And I may owe you an apology on that card when all is said and done, but we'll talk about that too. I I think you already owe me, let's be honest. Yeah, I probably do. I probably do. Both of these decks are fantastic. Dream Trawler has a lot to do with it. When I was fighting against including Dream Trawler in our top 10 list, last week. It wasn't because I didn't think the card was good. It was because I thought it would only exist in one archetype, blue-white. What I didn't understand is how many actual takes on blue-white there really are right now. You can build it in a lot of different ways. You can be mid-rangey, you can be controlling, and in all the builds, Dream Trawler is a huge portion of the equation, to say nothing about its presence in Esper. So you were probably right about this card. It was very close to my top 10. It was on your top 10, and I ultimately talked you out of it. It was a mistake. It should have been on the top 10 list. Big jerk. Uh, have you played any games of limited? Uh, I have. And I've had Dream Trawler and I've had it cast against me. I actually, the second I lost to Dream Trawler, I went to Twitter and started complaining. Yeah. And basically, Dream Dream Trawler at rare is going to get old. There's no way around it. It's just not going to feel good. And I sort of get why it's there, but I just wish it wasn't. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, it just ruins games straight up. It it is it is very stupid, yeah. and it is exactly cards like that where you're like, huh, maybe I should be playing this in sixty card formats. I don't know, but my experience against Dream Trawler has basically been like, okay, this card is definitely good, but I think a lot of my decks are prepared for it because I know that it is a prevalent card and is certainly a card that people like yep. and are going to try and build around it. You mentioned Esper. Esper Hero is one of those decks that people just won't let die. And uh, certainly, yeah, there are a lot of versions of Azorius out there too. So I don't know. The, the decks I've been playing, like if I'm playing Black, I'll have like Plague Crafter or Kaya's Wrath or something like that, something that can actually deal with it because you you need something, you know? 
There's a lot of things. There's uh, Farika's libations. There's consume, which is a fine answer to it in a lot of spots and does a good job of getting over the like play Bertha Miletus and have a wall to protect it from sacrifice right. effects. So y- you can make some concessions to Dream Trawler and check this card. On day one, nobody was. And you just played a Dream game. Trawler and you won every single game yep. on the spot. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, so what what is Azorius doing specifically that has it in tier one when Azorius Control wasn't there before? I mean, granted, these are very different decks, right? Like, the the deck as it exists now is just enchantments and card drawing and removal and some finishers. And occasionally, like, some counterspells. I think a lot of people are still playing counterspells, but they don't seem entirely necessary. So, like, what changed? What is actually good about this deck? Two cards come to mind. One has a lot more to do with than the other. The first is Vanishing Light, which I think is a small part of the equation. Just having a catch-all means a lot. But the big one is Elspeth Conqueror's Death, having a proactive catch-all. And then you have this turn where you play your main threat, be it Teferi, which Teferi is the main threat in a lot of cases. Narset maybe being rebought, or more often Dream Trawler, possibly Archon of Sun's Grace. You play it with all your mana open. And your threat just goes off and it's so hard for opponents to claw their way back in the game. And you answer every single problematic permanent. Bolus's Citadel, uh, Nyssa, all these huge cards, which otherwise can just beat you single-handedly. You now have a way to answer them while still advancing your game plan. You have the little roadblock of chapter two. So for me, more than anything else, it's been Elspeth Conquers Death. And that's to say nothing of its interaction with Teferi. Rebuying it multiple times to deal with multiple permanents has been huge for me. So it's a weird style of deck. And once you see that as one of the key cards, that's why I really started to get away from the typical controlling approach. I just wanted to tap out all the time. If I'm going to tap out on five, I may as well tap out on four too. And the best thing you can do tapping on a four is Archon of Sun's Grace. And I wrote in my article about a bunch of cards that incentivize you to close games earlier. And you know me, I want to stretch games on into oh, infinity. Yeah. That has been a deck building hallmark of mine for a long time. But in this instance where there are cards like Bolas's Citadel and Castle Lockthwain is a huge part of the equation. Certainly the scaling of the Simic decks. I know many of them have started giving up on Hydroid Crisis. I've started giving up on Hydroid Crisis. I think that's correct. But still, there's such late game elements present there, be it Blinking Agent of Treachery and just ending the game. All these things that go huge. There's this real emphasis on just closing out a game when you have the opportunity to. So... Elspeth Conquers Death is probably the card that I most regret not having on the top 10. I thought it was going to be a card that Same. would show up as like a two Same. of in some lists or whatever. And nah, it's it's just good against like everyone and everything, at least currently. And that that's another thing that you have to take note of with this tier list, right? Is that like this, this is going to fluctuate. It is going to change inevitably. And... Elspeth Conquers Death could also just be a card that falls out of favor very quickly. You know, people are eventually going to identify the good aggressive cards, good aggressive strategies, and maybe get under that card. But for right now, in a mid-range slog fest, I mean, Elspeth Conquers All is, or Conquers Death is just the trump. I, I think you said it right. Elspeth Conquers All. That has well, been yeah. my experience playing this card. Except, it has been except not, awesome. not actual Elspeth. Not, not that card. You're our lore expert. You'll have to tell me all about that. No, no. I'm just saying uh, Elspeth's son's nemesis is not doing much conquering. I think that card's fine. I've been very impressed with that card out of sideboards. Uh, It's not like 
the main deck staple. We said that when we evaluated the card, but in the role you're asking it to play, it has really impressed me, actually. Sure, but we're not seeing like, you know, four copies in main decks of this card. Like it is seeing very sporadic play. I think that's fair. For a Hallmark Planeswalker, it's seen less play than you would expect. But in those roles, I've been happy with it. So Elspeth Conquers Death, great card, basically propped up and rejuvenated this archetype single-handedly. Is this actually the best home for it? It's a fair question. And you talked about being paired against people who like do really cool stuff and your eyes kind of go wide. Oh, no. I've seen some mid-range decks with Satessan Champion and Elspeth Conquers Death. And obviously that revives your champions. And they're just like this weird tap out bat deck that somehow goes even huger than the blue white deck, but has all the same hallmarks, like is doing all the same stuff except it never runs out of gas. And obviously there's some clunkiness there, but you want to play all the two drop enchantments anyway. That's a big pickup for the blue white deck too. I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't talk about that. The fact that you get to keep basically any two lander plus one of the enchantments really diversifies your range of opening hands and the consistency that either Omen of the Sea uh, Metamized Prophecy or the Birth of Miletus all provide is fantastic for your typical control deck. So yeah. I don't want to sleep on those cards either. Yeah, those those cards are all great. I've actually been pretty surprised by Omen of the Sea. I, I thought it was going to be fine, but it's it's just looked so much better than that. Yeah, right there with you. I still think there's a argument to be made for Metamized Prophecy, but I am trending to splits in my tap out decks and just Omen of the Sea in my decks that still have counterspells. So. Fair enough. No Doom Foretold shenanigans with uh, Elspeth Conquer's death. You haven't worked on that too much? I have not worked on Doom Foretold, but I do find myself routinely impressed by the black-white Doom Foretold decks. I, I think you're just off Esper. I haven't seen a huge amount of reason to go into Abzan, like, we talked about Satessan Champion with the shell or even the green-white planeswalker. What is that? Annex? No, that's the red card. Calyx. Help me with this one too. Calyx. I knew there was an X in there somewhere. Uh, we talked about Doom Foretold with Calyx. I think just the black-white builds are really, really good and you actually don't have to go down that route. But, but you still can. space to be explored. Like we said, you can and maybe someone will find the secret sauce and put it together in just the right way. All right. Second deck in our tier one mono black devotion how much have you played with this a good amount and i think that i have learned a lot about this deck as time has gone on and i'm not the only one as i play against this deck i see the builds getting better and better i started with cat oven mostly off it at this point i'd just rather play more powerful cards and also my first builds were either low on bolus's citadel or didn't play it at all, that was a mistake. And I'm up to usually three copies of Bolas' Citadel in my Mono Black Devotion decks now. It is the most powerful thing this deck does. It can pull you out of any situation, and the deck should be mostly built around it, I believe. So no Witches Oven, which makes me less excited to play with things like Nightmare Shepherd. So where are you on that card? I play Woe Strider, Woe Strider usually, and that's been enough. And you still have Ayara. So I, I do think you need two sacrifice engines, and I think you're incentivized to have two sacrifice engines because Nightmare Shepherd is so good. And that card has been fantastic. It's lived up to my expectations. But you do have to 
basically makes some concessions to having it in your deck. And I think either Ayara plus Witch Oven or Ayara plus Wolf Strider is completely fine. Yeah, when I was building these decks, my first inclination was to try and maximize Shepard, which meant probably playing Witch's Oven and the Cat and just more creatures in general, especially if you want to still play Ayara and Woe Strider, which meant that I didn't have a ton of room for interaction. And the mm-hmm. the version you're talking about with a bunch of Bullets and Citadels, I would expect you to be playing more interaction in those decks, right? Because like you need to slow the game down and actually make it so that you get to that point. But then does it make things like Ayara too weak to the point where maybe you want to start moving away from that stuff or no? I think Ayara is just good enough. Like it has shined in most instances the ability to the I win ability of combining it with a nightmare shepherd is just absolutely absurd. And you find enough utility for it otherwise while just having a huge amount of pips. And that's also part of your get to bolus a citadel plan is make sure your gray merchants are bridging very effectively to that card and winning the game when you find them off bolus a citadel and Ayara plays into that as well. So I may have like gotten away from four copies. I don't feel like I always need to have it when I'm not doing witch's oven stuff, uh, but still three copies of Ayara in my decks right now. Agonizing remorse. Usually making the main deck at this point. And I thought things might trend that way. That has proven to be true. I I just think it's an important card. There's a lot of problematic things that as soon as they enter the battlefield will mess up your day. Dream Trawler, Elspeth Conquers Death, both come to mind. You want to deal with those in hand. So yeah, Agonizing Remorse has shined for me. I've built a lot of black mid-range decks that didn't necessarily include blue and it's like, oh, yeah, I'm just, you know, short on good two mana plays. The removal of two mana is not great. You have a, a plethora of options at three and four. And, yeah, this is just the card that I've been leaning on. And I I slept on Thought Erasure initially. You were the one who had it in your top ten. I didn't have it in mine. And I was like, really? Like this two mana card? I don't know. And surely that card has proved to be good enough. You know, I mean, obviously like the surveil helps and it being multicolored for hero made it see a little bit more play. But even when those things didn't matter all that much, Thought Erasure still shows up in a lot of those decks because it's just like this proactive way to handle right. things. And Agonizing Remorse is basically the exact same thing. It is Thought Erasure for black mid-range decks that are not playing blue. Yeah, and it's been fantastic in that role. Anytime you're doubting a two mana discard spell, just remind yourself we somehow got by and transgressed the mind. And if that could actually see play, that terrible, terrible card, nah, man. then surely there's a place for agonizing remorse. See, that's the thing is transgress was so bad that I just didn't even want to mess with this it, card. It tainted it. Yeah, it tainted it in your eyes. All two mana discard spells are forever associated with transgress the mind. Uh, so I, the, the zombies PTI won, right? Basically, everyone had four transgresses in their sideboard, but you just could never really cast it on turn two because it just slowed down your development so much. And it, it was the best duress we had, right? But mm-hmm. uh, for for that PT, I cut two of them from my sideboard because I was just like, this card is so bad. And then by the time I got to the top eight of the tournament, I was just not even bringing it in anymore. It's like, it, it's in my deck for right. these Marvel matchups. And I was like, it's so bad, I'm just not bringing it in. So... Uh, in in a world of mid range, not uh, like a, a aggro deck that is slanting mid range, like Zombies was. This card is phenomenal. I it's it's been in like my Devotion decks, my Doom Foretold decks, my 
Jun sacrifice decks. It's it's in so many places. Yeah, probably should be more of this card going around. I, I have embraced it, but I don't. It's not cast against me as often as it should be. I see in a lot of lists. I just haven't played against it very much. Okay, interesting. All right, well let's let's jump around a little bit. Uh, Simic ramp. You worked on this. You also worked on mono green devotion. Clearly, there are a lot of cards that allow you to just make a bunch of mana, and then there are a bunch of good payoffs. So what is the best way to go about doing things right now? I think people are mostly just doing normal, like, Euro, Cavalier of Thorns, Thassa, Agent of Treachery stuff, and, like, that's good. That has been working for them, but I feel like there is a better deck to be built here. The the biggest thing is that people aren't maximizing Agent of Treachery, and that's unacceptable. There needs to be four copies of Agent of Treachery in these decks, period. It is the best top end you can do right now. If you are putting Nathasa in your deck, play four copies of Agent of Treachery because you just have an I win button sitting there. If you have Athasa in play and cast Agent of Treachery, it is challenging to lose. Not only that, but it also breaks up opposing Thassa synergies. One of the few ways you can do that in this color combination. So maximize your agent of treacheries. That's the biggest step forward you can take to the basic ramp deck. As far as like some further larks at the archetype, the mono green stuff is inconsistent. It's weird, but it has a bifurcated game plan that I really like. Like you can actually beat down with the devotion list that I posted and being able to switch gears like that feels meaningful when people start accounting for this go huge type approach. So there's something to be figured out with that list. It's not good in its present state. And basically it's a list with a bunch of Nyx Lotuses and Kioras and the blue-green hybrid four drop whose name I don't even know because nobody has ever played it. Yeah, Thunder Thunder something. Yeah, Thunder something. Go look that one up. But basically just maximizing your mana and then casting huge finale of Devastations. There's four copies of that card in the deck. So it's more of a sketch than an actual developed deck, but there there is something there. And if you were asking me, like, how do these ramp archetypes evolve? I would look in that direction. But if you're just looking to play the stock blue-green stuff, my biggest advice I can hand at this point is play for Agent of Treachery, 100%. Thunderous Snapper. Thank you. Uh, why are people not playing Dryad of the Elysian Grove? Well, there's diminishing returns on this effect, right? This is the 2-4 enchantment is creature there? allows you to make... I, I think there is. Are you going to tell me there's not? Well, it, each one is an exploration. You get to play another land that turn. That is great. You just reach a point where you do not have another land any longer between your uh, boreal grazers and your growth spirals and your uros. You have a lot of congruent effects where you're routinely pumping lands out of your hand onto the battlefield. And this doesn't do anything for like Thassa setup. So you're comparing it to something like Risen Reef because it's sitting at the same place on the curve. If you're looking to be a Thassa deck, you certainly are incentivized to play Risen Reef. Yes. And we got to the place where we had this card actually probably not high enough and we had it number two on our list. It probably should have been number one now that I've played more. Uh, maybe, maybe Elspeth Conqueror's Death should have been number one. One of those two cards should have been much higher. And what I didn't appreciate anywhere near enough is how impactful the tap ability was going to prove to be in the ramp decks. Because those spots where you were like 
flooding out and couldn't find anything to do. They're they're far more rare because you are able to get blinks from your Thassa on your Risen Reefs, but you have something to do to mitigate aggression in that spot and stop your opponents from just running you over uh, when you've made this huge, huge mana base and haven't found your payoff. You will just always have time to find it now. So Dryad with Hydrocrisis is kind of where I want to be. I've already been doing it with uh, Trail of Crumbs type of stuff and just making sure that you have enough gas to to fuel that card and it mm-hmm. ends up just being one of your best ramp cards. And obviously I'm not saying that you should cut Risen Reef for it, but you can play multiples of those sorts of effects. I mean, like people are already playing Euro and, and Risen Reef and Spiral and all that stuff. So I think it's a card that people need sure. to be experimenting a little bit more in this archetype. I, I don't think that it necessarily like slots in cleanly as the decks are built currently, but it it bears right. consideration. The biggest sticking point I have is when you're playing Krasis, you, you, you probably have to give up the Thassa package, which is not something I want to do. I've just been very impressed by that package. But there's also this weird tension where I feel like I'm incentivized to start getting away from Cavalier of Thorns because I have this other big payoff and I don't necessarily need Cavaliers anymore. And then I actually don't think you can play Uro without Cavalier of Thorns. I think it is that critical to the card. And it's one of the main reasons why I regret having Uro as our number one card because I think it is very good, but I just haven't found a way to make it work outside of Cavalier of Thorns decks. Yeah, you, I mean, you need ways to put cards in your graveyard. Uh, a lot of other decks in the format end up just trading incidentally, but Simic doesn't really. You're just lands and no. creatures, you know? So if they're right. killing your stuff, sure. If you crack a bunch of Fable Passages, maybe, but for the most part, you're not putting cards in your graveyard. I do like what you're saying, though. I am interested in a build that just goes four copies of Dryad of the Elysian Grove, four copies of Hydroid Crisis, still maintains the the Thassa top end, you just have to find something else to do in the middle. And I don't really know what that looks like. It's something that draws cards for sure. Right, right. Well, probably the proper place to build this deck is not live on this cast, but you have given me something to think about. I do think the card's powerful and we see it already finding a very established home in modern. Of course, that has a lot to do with Valakut, uh, but I'm, it's I'm a powerful enough card. card. It's a wild print. Like you, you put it out there, and you know this is going to affect modern in a very dramatic way. It's it's super clear, and it came at a time when Primeval Titan was one of the two hard pillars, and the other pillar was soft banned. So I don't know, man. I don't know what's going to happen in Richmond. I expect a lot of Titans on the battlefield. Yeah, I, it's it's just so absurd to me that like the Valakut decks used to just play Prismatic Omen, you know, and now right. you just have to play this as a one of to pact for it. it and that's assuming that you don't want to go super hard down the road of just like playing four and seeing what you can do with it. And yeah, mm-hmm. it is, it is kind of silly. Very silly. And the, the field of the dead, the dedicated field of the dead decks are now also dedicated Valakut decks. And to say nothing of the fact that you can still just be an amulet deck and have that kill too. So a lot of branching paths opening up to primeval Titan players for sure. Yeah, it's weird. All right. Uh, mono white aggro. Only started playing this today because you said you are fairly impressed with it. Uh, yep. I never really had a list I was in love with. Of course, Mono White Aggro won the first standard challenge, did so with no new cards. 
probably a bit of card availability going on there with that event, but still a, a point to note. But finally, you have presented me with a list that I do really like. I got to play some games before we recorded. I was impressed. Why don't you go ahead and talk about you, what you've been doing in the mono white space? I did a scryfall search for life. That easy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, pretty much. Uh, it's, it is really genius, uh, innovative deck building where I just took all the cards that said life gain on them and put them all into a deck. So Healer's Hawk, uh, the Alcid of something or other. Daxos, Ajani's Pride Mate, Hushbringer's main deck because it's the best card you could possibly want against Mono Black Devotion. Heliod, obviously, Heliod Daxos is the core, even though Hushbringer kind of shuts off your Daxos. It's not really that big of a deal. And uh, Linden is another good find that works very well with Heliod and Ajani's Pride Mate. And then Banishing Light and Ajani. Four mana Johnny and just some lands. I think that's the deck. Yeah, I deviated a little bit and have some Gideon's main, but that's fine. These these cards have been so impressive when they come together, and you do have access to like longer game plans, and you can kind of grind an opponent out and put them in the vice very early. It feels like a deck that branches in a lot of ways. A deck that really rewards careful combat decisions uh i've been impressed with it and i think that if this is one of the poles of a format it will require some concessions and people aren't making them right now yeah i think i think the best thing that you can do for an aggressive deck is find a way for it also to be able to play a long game because then you get to start putting your opponent under pressure. You get to dictate the terms of engagement and force them to react to what you're doing. And I think that is huge, especially when in the meantime, you're just setting up for, you know, some Heliod Daxo shenanigans or like, you know, this, this turn I'm going to get to, play Linden, attack with a few things, move these counters around, have Elsiad up, you really get to dictate the pace of the game and what's going on. You build the biggest battlefield presence. And in the meantime, you're also just gaining a bunch of life too, which means that a Johnny is super yep. scary. So uh, yeah, this, this deck is quite good. One of the really cool things, like if you were to name the problem cards for a traditional white aggro deck, you would just snap off sweepers immediately without question. You play through sweepers so so well with this deck if you are thoughtful with how you're rationing your threats and i mentioned i added a couple of gideons which certainly helps my ability but you already have heliod you have the four mana, mana johnny's to just make all the pride mates you ever need and that card has impressed so much so so strong in this deck it's nice to see that finally find a home yeah but yeah I've, I've been blown away by how good this deck is yeah, I was when I started building these decks, I was like, eh, a Johnny, like I'll try one. And the list that I ended up sending you just has four because you can't play Arcanist yep. Owl when you have Hushbringer in your deck. And certainly as the, the format changes a little bit and maybe Hushbringer becomes less important, then maybe you could move back to some amount of owls. But yeah, a Johnny as a thing that can either trigger Heliod or just make another a Johnny's Pride Mate threat or you know, just turn six or something after you've gained a bunch of life, you can just clear their board. Basically this card is actually very, very good. And we finally have all the pieces for it. 
yeah, nice to see this get some shine. And it's complemented by such good planeswalkers in Gideon, and you have copies of Elspeth in your sideboard. So in post-board games where decks have shifted their focus extremely hard on containing your ability to be on the battlefield, you're just this weird planeswalker aggressive deck that can make tokens at will between your four castle arden veils your gideons that never die your heliods that never die your elspeths your johnny's all these cars just vomiting creatures onto the battlefield it's really really hard for a control deck to play around all that stuff yeah in any matchup where they're going to bring in sweepers you just do something like cut hushbringer a couple healers hawks and a couple lindens and bring in the things that you noted like the planeswalkers and you just don't care anymore yeah yeah, I identified that sideboard plan very quickly, and I was like, oh, they can't beat me anymore. Yeah. This is so impossible for them. Yeah, and then the the other good aspect of it is that like, you somehow have a bunch of good removal, too. You have like Glass Casket, Devout Decree out of the sideboard. You have uh, Revoke Existence if you want it, Heliod's Intervention, like White. Sure. Oh, Elspeth Conquers Death, too. I have a couple of those in the sideboard, which, you know, maybe is wrong. Maybe it should be like a lot more copies, but... White just has a ton of versatility now. I think the only thing that's really missing is like a Knight of the White Orchid type of thing. And Birth of Miletus kind of checks that, but like 04 Defender doesn't really fit in with what the game plan is. So I've liked that a lot more in the more mid rangey or control style shells. But like for an aggressive deck, this is very close to having it all. Yeah, it was pretty obvious to us in looking at the previews that White was about to get significant upgrades. I still think even with that being the case, I underestimated in how many ways it was going to be upgraded. It got everything that it was missing. I mean, white aggro was playable, but now with yep. Daxos and Heliod, it just gives you such an incredible core to build around if you want to play an aggressive deck. And, you know, you don't have to play all the life gain stuff and all the Johnny's pride mates, but it makes your deck a lot more explosive, a lot more synergetic and I like that aspect of it, even though it's not entirely necessary. Like you could just do Arcanist Owl and Elspeth Conquers Death and just be like a little bit more mid-rangey and that's fine too. But Banishing Light checks a lot of boxes and you just have a lot of resiliency through opposing removal spells. And I think that that helps a ton too. And the rest of the supporting white cards are still there. They're all still completely reasonable. Like if you want to find a good two drop or a good three drop or whatever, like you have those cards, you just didn't have like these these super stellar all-stars before. Now we do. The scenario that you're describing is exactly how I hope this standard format ultimately plays out. I hope it becomes correct at times to make this shift that you're talking about because all of these decks feel like they have these type of shifts built in. We're talking about blue-white control that can go between being a more mid-range deck or having that really, really big top end. We're talking about mono-black that can be very which is oven focused or bolus is citadel focused or very heavy on removal. I want these decisions to matter on a week to week basis. And it feels like we are set up for that presently in a way that we were not the last two or three sets. Right. It was like you find your Jun food core or whatever. And then on a week to week basis, you play an extra massacre girl or something, but you don't really have right. the ability to shift. And I think granted, I think a lot of that was because like, you know, a, a decent amount of cards got banned. Like, right. Oko could allow you to play like an aggressive game plan or a controlling game plan. And that was a focal point of the food mechanic. 
So it, it is always weird to play these standard formats when it's like very clearly missing cards. And now I just, I don't feel like that anymore. I do feel like basically all of these decks have the ability to go like a little faster, a little slower, depending on what the metagame warrants and everything. The trouble I have is that in any given metagame, you might be like, oh, I need a deck that does this sort of mid-range thing, for example, and you're able to pinpoint like a color combination or a strategy that can do it. And now it's like, okay, well, I need to do this sort of mid-range thing. I have 15 decks to look at, you know? So right. it's possible that we identify the correct game plan, but not the right tools. And that kind of stinks. It's like, we, we just have like too many options, which I guess is a bad thing. I don't know. I don't think so. I, I think I understand what you're saying, but I think the way that will actually play out is actually what we want from this format and what we want as magic players. That kind of mistake is going to feel a lot better than the mistake of, I didn't put Oko in my deck. That yeah. was really stupid. And- I, so I'm, I'm talking about it being bad for a player who wants to feel like they have agency. And I certainly have agency here, but I just know that at the end of the day, I might as well just dartboard it because I'm probably not going to find the right answer anyway. You know, like if, if you had all the time in the world and could figure it out on a week to week basis, then you'd probably feel great about it, you know? But in this case, it's just like, well, I have a ton of options. I'm pretty sure I'm going to get it wrong. So like, do any of my choices actually matter? And it's bad specifically for the player, maybe who wants to feel rewarded for making good choices. But in the context of like, is this format going to be fresh and healthy and fun? I think it's just a slam dunk, right? because you're always going to see variety. Yeah, that's the hope. We'll have to do our best to help those players out, Gerald. We're just going to figure it out every week. That's going to be our game plan for this the entirety of this format. No matter how hard it is, no matter how many options we have, we're going to make the perfect choice every week. Oh my god, dude, there's no way. I think I think we between the two of us, between the two of us making sure to pick a different thing, I think that we'll probably get it right like 15% of the time. I like those odds. That's not bad, really. I mean, magic magic is definitely a tournament structure that rewards spikes, you know? So like if I win 15% of the tournaments I play in, that's not bad. That's great. Yeah, you had a great season. All right, last tier one deck, and this is the exciting one. You ready for this? I am so ready for this. Jun Food, ever heard of it? I have, and I agree with you, and I love it. And the biggest upgrade for Jun Food, what do you see as the biggest upgrade for this deck? I think we're going to agree. So how do you pronounce Sam's last name? I I would say Grabner, but I'm not 100% on that. See, that's what I thought too, but I feel like we're butchering it. Anyway, uh, Sam has been posting some deck lists and... His, his deck just looks really good. And I, I've Agreed. I've tried it. I've made some adjustments. Basically, he has added Treacherous Blessing to the deck and also yep. Dryad of the Elysian Grove, which we were talking about, which does a lot of cool things for the archetype where you're generating a bunch of cards with like Cat, Oven, Trail of Crumbs. You now get to make extra land drops. Your you mana- get to use them. You get to use all those yes. cards. It's incredible. Yeah, you have this 2-4 body that's blocking for toughness, also able to make two foods in a pinch because uh, this deck will often come up with situations where you're just like short of food 
So you just get to build up like these big board states and then eventually Mayhem Devil, Corvold people or like Mayhem Devil, Bontu. And in the meantime, you're just like drawing a bunch of cards with Treacherous Blessing and Dryad allows you to actually play out those cards in a reasonable manner. Like this is a very sizable upgrade for this deck, which was already quite good, even though I I certainly had my issues with it last season. I, I think it's just much better now. Yeah, and I don't know if people have processed that yet because it's not super sexy. Based mostly on title, honestly. Like you just see Jun Food and your eyes glaze over and you go, oh, I know this deck. This was around all of the last format. This is a different deck. This is a much better version of the deck. It's doing something more powerful in the mid game and it still has that incredible late game engine and still has honestly those early game spikes where you just curve out perfectly and your opponent really is never even in the game so it checks all the boxes this might still be the best deck quite frankly despite all these other upgrades that everyone else has picked up it wouldn't surprise me if in the end jun food outshines them all and it's just going to take more people heading back to the archetype and putting down the fun new toys. And I'm guilty of this. I've played hardly any Jun food. I've played just enough to know these are real, real upgrades. And probably if I was like trying to get to a certain ladder placement, if that was my goal, I would just lock in Jun food and play it until people started appropriately adapting because you're getting pulled in a lot of ways on the polls right now. You need to account for the big game of the Simic decks. You need to account for the small ball stuff from the more aggressive white decks you need the answer to the inevitability of the control decks. And all of that is a little bit different than exactly what the Jun food deck does. And I, I don't know if people have the right tools in their decks for this deck right now. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And Dryad plus treacherous blessing is a game changer. Did you get to play any with the list that I sent you? No, I haven't played with that list yet, but I, I have played the Dryad blessing combination and enough to, unquestionably know it's the truth. So I'll, I'll put out this list uh, probably when I get to refine it a little bit more. But basically, I took Sam's deck, cut the red, and tried to lean into the combo-ish aspect of the deck a little bit more. And this is kind of what I was talking about. Like, Dryad plus card drawing is very good. And mm-hmm. this deck has both Treacherous Blessing and Trail of Crumbs. And then, you know what? Why, why do we need the red cards? What is, what is Mayhem Double doing? Granted, there have already been situations I've come across where it's like, you know, I would really like the ability to just, you know, clear a battlefield here, right? Because you're doing a lot of stuff where you're like building things up, but you can't necessarily take away what they're doing. So there's some tuning to be done for sure. But yeah, mostly I just went super hard on that sort of stuff, was playing some Massacre Girls. And since I was only green-black... I got to play a couple Blast Zones in my mana base, which has been solid with the Treacherous Blessings and also just a fine card to have around when you get to make a bunch of extra land drops. And thing that just like came up randomly was uh, Gingerbread Cabin with the Dryad because you just always have three forests. Okay. Yeah, that seems fine. We've all been in the spot where you just need a food to get your stuff going again. Sounds sounds good. Uh, you mentioned Blast Zone. I've been impressed with, impressed with Blast Zone in a few spots. Simic, now generally, I think Stock runs a copy of Blast Zone. It's been really, really good for me. And even 
the blue-white hard control versions, not the mid-range versions, but the hard control versions. A Blast Zone has been good there too. So that card's starting to see a little bit more play. Yeah, I started with uh, Labyrinth of Scophos in the control decks, but you need Field of Ruin for Castle Lockthwain or just Blast Zone as an additional removal spell, I think. Right. Yeah, I want Labyrinth to be good. I had it in one of my sealed decks, and it was just a house, like an absolute house, shutting off lifelink for my opponent over and over and letting yeah. me win a race. But haven't quite gotten on board with it and constructed yet. Yeah, the the format's just not about it. I mean, like, obviously, if there's a bunch of Embercleave stuff going on and Rotting Regisaurs, like, that's a nice way to lock it up, right? But at least yeah. with the stuff that people are doing currently, I mean, people are just you know, drawing cards and accruing value off various enchantments and sagas and whatnot. And the games just aren't really about that. Agreed. All right. So that's our tier one. It's kind of cut and dry. I do think that these are pretty clearly the tier one decks, but the, the drop off to tier two is not that wide. So Mm-mm. It would not be surprising for these decks to like shift in and out of the tiers in the coming weeks, especially as like, you know, like we said, the tier two decks mostly at this point have been the decks that people have not refined. So over time, you will see these decks get a little bit better. And certainly as the metagame stabilizes, I mean, there's going to be periods where things like Gruul or Rectos Knights are very, very good. And those decks will definitely take a spot in tier one. Yeah, just the the tier one decks that we have now are like basically well-tuned machines and tier two is just kind of like we're still figuring things out. Well put. I have had plenty of success with some of these tier two decks. There's several I think are close. And if people put in the time, they might push into tier one. Still so early in the format though for them to have made that leap. Yeah, so the the deck that you've been working on the most recently, I mean, I assume so given your tweets and everything, I know that things change quickly and you've basically had another day to explore other things, but uh, Celestine Enchantments has been a thing that you were on for a couple days, and I know that you said the main deck was great, you just needed help building like a cohesive sideboard. Where do you stand on that currently? I think the deck is still pretty fantastic, comes at the format in a way that people are not prepared for it. I know our friend Nick Prince just played it to Mythic, was very impressed with the deck and put together his sideboard, which I liked. It did a good job of answering the problems that I was coming across. The big piece of technology, which really unlocked that deck for me. I'm sorry. I don't remember who tweeted it at me. Someone just tweeted me when they saw my first Paradise draft Druid. list. Paradise Druid, question mark. And Yes, 100% Paradise Druid should have been in my list immediately. You play it with Sentinel's Eyes, and now you actually have a Hexproof Threat. And this deck goes so, so big. Your creatures just become tremendous very, very quickly. I feel like there's something here because you can play around virtually anything. You do not care about Wraths. They just aren't important. You generate so much card advantage that you're able to rebuild immediately. Spot removal won't work against Paradise Druid if you're patient with that setup. This is a strange deck. I think if you try to play it like an aggressive deck, you'll lose a lot. You have to be very thoughtful about picking your spots. You have to understand how far to commit. You have to craft hands for the inevitable collapse that you will experience while still putting enough pressure on your opponent. But if you have experience with those type of situations, I think Infect Pilots will really like this deck. It feels very similar to me in a lot of ways. 
knowing when to go for it, knowing when to hold some resources back. A lot of the same dynamics going on there, except you just have this incredible snowball that you can achieve in the late game where you just one shot your opponent out of nowhere and win the game on the spot. Yeah, the White Heroic decks were exactly like that. Yep. Yeah, very, very similar to those old Theros decks. Yeah, so you have Satessum Champion and Season of Growth as your engines. What right. happens if you don't draw one of those cards? Like, if you don't have one of them in your opening hand, are you mulliganing a decent amount of the time, or what's the deal? A very large majority of the time, you will mulligan the exception is if you have multiple lions, and then you can just be an aggressive deck pretty cleanly, play your two mana three threes. Now, there's some matchups where that'll fail for sure. But you obviously still have outs of drawing back into your engine. So those are basically my three parameters. You have a Tessin champion, you have a season of growth, or you have a lion, usually multiple lions. Otherwise, you have to mulligan. And you can win very easily on mulligans to five with this deck. If you have engine sentinel's eyes, you are probably in a fine position if your opponent doesn't overwhelm you right away. Yeah. And then the sideboard stuff that Nick did? Gideon clean up spots where you need lifelink which i really liked i would have to pull it up to think about the rest of the stuff he went to four hushbringer there's a little bit of a pinch there between satessin champion not triggering off like your alcyids and your transcendent envoys i think so that's, that's a little okay, weird yeah. but i also think it's okay because the effect that the hushbringer is going to have on your opponent is going to be far more backbreaking than it is on you. So those those were the main pickups I really liked. I was using Sentinel's Mark as opposed to Gideon for my lifelink. I think Gideon's just a cleaner way of doing it and also gives you some more game against any wrath effects you may face. The card I am not playing that everyone hates, Karametra's Blessing, don't need it, not necessary. I could go off for an hour about why I think playing Blessing is just bad deck building, but the the point is you have your engines. Any card that is not part of your engine has a huge, huge barrier to entry and has to be something you actively need in order to have a chance in games. And you do not need protection from basically wraths. That's all blessing is often protecting you from that you'd otherwise be vulnerable to. Otherwise you have an Alcyid or you have a Hexproof Paradise Druid or you have an Indestructible Lion and all those things don't care about spot removal. Right. So Blessing is just about accounting for Wraths, and it's trivially easy to play around Wraths. It's so, so simple to just generate value and beat them. Any closing thoughts? Do you feel like you've uh, gotten this deck about as far as it can go, or do you think it still has legs and room for improvement? I think it has room for improvement. I think considering the breakdown of Transcendent Envoys and Starfield Mystic, which is a card I'm not playing I think Envoy, the fact that it has flying and is an enchantment, again, you want to be maximizing your engine as much as possible, has me going in that direction for the time being, but it's possible you just want more of that effect in general. So I would have to consider that. And I do think there's still room for growth in the sideboard. I think Nick had a really fine first draft, but you can also look at some transformational stuff and some ways to go bigger and maybe even some more controlling elements alongside Satessin Champion. So if someone maps out a really strong sideboard for this deck, I think this guy really is the limit. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested for sure. This is one of the decks that I have to play with still. If you're the type of person who loves having a 35, 37 in play, this is the deck for you. That seems like overkill, but uh, moving no, on. the perfect amount. <laughs> Moving on to Esper Hero, 
I have seen a lot of people badmouthing this deck, including Nick Prince. So, how do you feel about this deck? I had a blast playing this deck. I enjoyed all of my games. Artis is a nice pickup. That's the name of the format of Legend, right? Atris. That does the shell game. Atris, thank you. I was so close. So, so close. A really nice pickup in the four drop slot. Huge, huge upgrade over something like Elite Guard Mage. I still hate Hero of Precinct 1. I just will never, ever get this card. I want to cut it from these decks, and I feel like my decks would be markedly improved. But the Esper cards are so powerful. Ashiok has really shined. We mentioned Dream Trawler already. I had such a good time playing with this deck. It felt unrefined to me, and it felt like there were other directions to possibly take it, including hero list builds, which I do think have some merit. You could just play a Esper mid-range deck and be totally fine. So I need to go back and explore that, but this deck was certainly good enough for tier two, and it would not surprise me at all if someone can refine it to tier one. I like the idea of hero as a proactive two mana play that, you know, pressures planeswalkers, pressures control decks, attacks people from a different angle. That said, the two, two body and the one ones it generates are just at like the, the, the all time worst that they've been, you know, yep. like they had problems previous seasons where those cards didn't really do anything, but just casting a thing on turn two versus not and dying with an extra card in your hand doesn't really get you anywhere either. Like, it's not like those cards do zero. It just doesn't carry you the way that it used to. Yeah. To me, the ideal use for our two drop slot, and it's it's what Hero is supposed to do, I think. It's a card that can upgrade throughout the game. So a creature with level up is really what I'm looking for here. And nothing like that immediately springs to mind. And then once you forgo the two drop spot, you have no chance at aggression whatsoever. It's just completely closed out of your game plan and you have to build in a totally different fashion. And like I said, that might be completely fine. There's a lot of tools in this Esper deck that allow you to go that route. I would just have to think of exactly what it starts to look like then. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I, I would recommend that people keep Hero in the deck. If, if they want to try it, they, try it without it. They absolutely should. But just recognize that you're going to need to fill that two drop slot with something else, probably something proactive, just because the deck is like a little slow and a little clunky otherwise. And there are some two mana cards like D-Spark and Drown in the Lock come to mind as cards that do cost two mana, but you can't even really play on turn two anyway. So just be wary right. of that. But yeah, the, the card quality overall is good. And I agree that there isn't really a cohesive game plan, right? Like you're not a beatdown deck. You're not a tempo deck. You're not a control deck. Post board, you can shift into either of those, which is certainly a big draw to playing this sort of deck. But the thing that I've really liked about it, at least specifically now, is that it has a lot of disruption and removal for various permanents and you know, life gain, velocity, Atris helps a lot, obviously, to the point where you just get to pick apart these poorly built decks because you have ways of interacting with basically everyone. Yeah. And in a really fun and interactive manner, which is a style of magic I think a lot of us like. And we want this deck to be good. I am hopeful it ultimately gets there. It's so wild that across these three color, like we basically have no regard for color distribution whatsoever. We would play anything. And it's wild we can't find a two-drop to fill this slot. Well, I'm sure there are plenty of reasonable two-mana cards you could play. Just, you know, play Metamize Prophecy or whatever. Like, that's probably fine, too. 
right now the deck is built in such a way where it's like, oh, well, if, if you're a gold card, we're going to give you an extra look and you don't necessarily have to do that once heroes out of the deck. Like a lot of the good sideboard cards are not multicolored cards because you're expecting to trim on hero or hero is going to die more often. But something like Elspeth Conquers Death, which is obviously a very fantastic card, would certainly be great in a deck like this, but you just don't really play it because you don't want to invest five mana and also not make a token off it. Uh, so you could go that route, but then you're just looking at like, well, why the hell aren't I just playing blue-white? And I think that's reasonable. Maybe you should just be playing blue-white. I don't know. Well, okay. So so hear me out on this point. If you're playing hero, what is the two drop you actually want to play on turn two? Because it's usually not hero. Erasure, and you want to play more erasures, but... Yeah, play play Agonizing Demise. Remorse. Remorse. Yeah, God, these can. eight days are going to be tough, Jerry. I'm just going to be sitting I there know. with an open open notebook trying to learn these card names. No, just when you're playing on Arena, actually read the cards. That would help. Or stream, which would then force you to mention the card names. Mm, I did do some stream setup this week, which is just as good as actually streaming, I'm pretty sure. Basically the same thing. You just right. have to then read cards off from your deck list. Sure. Well, that's a good idea. That would certainly get me in a place where I'm ready for Richmond. Anyway, yes, you you want a two-mana discard spell. I think that cutting four heroes for like another removal spell and two agonizing remorse would be fine. However, those cards certainly have diminishing returns. Agonizing remorse, in theory, does some stuff. I have literally yet to exile a card from a graveyard yet, but I'm sure it'll come up at some point. Yeah, there'll be an arrow you'll grab at some point for sure. How? Why? They're not putting any cards in their graveyard. Why would it matter? <sighs> they they cast Cavalier of Thorns. They got lucky. Okay, well, must be nice. Yeah, Esper Hero, fine deck. I think people are going to play it. They do like that that game plan, that style. But there are going to be certain metagames where it's a little bit better than others. And this is one of those decks I feel like kind of has the ceiling capped already. Interesting. To me, there's still room to evolve, but it again, if it evolves, I don't think it'll be Esper Hero, so it's probably a different deck at that point. You might be right, the Esper, Esper Hero build is capped. Yes. All right, uh, Gruul Aggro, thoughts? Don't have a lot of thoughts here, I'll be honest. This is a deck, I, I can't play every deck, but I did play against it today, and I was playing Mono Red, and single-handedly lost to Clothis. I mean, it was the only card that mattered. Yes. It just beat me straight up. That that card's incredible. It's a reason to play Gruul Aggro, but I don't have a lot to contribute on this archetype. How about you? Dude, me either. I haven't played any okay. with it. I've, I've looked at deck lists. I built them, but it's like, of all the sweet things to test, do I really want to test Gruul Aggro? No, absolutely not. That'll be the last thing I test. 100%. I, I do think it's fine, though. I, I, think it's, I think it's probably pretty good. The list that I'm kicking around right now is adventures with a fairly low mana curve and just kind of okay. like topping out at the three mana, like Clothis, Domri, probably some questing beasts and some Ember Cleaves, but really just trying to turn that Clothis online. Incredible magic card for sure. Yeah. Uh, Rectos Knights. Certainly haven't played Rakdos Knights. Who in their right mind would be playing this deck right now? But when I'm trying to get up to some nonsense and like figure out a new deck, this is the deck that brings me back to Earth every time. So yeah, I, I believe it's probably yeah, I believe it's probably still good. 
I don't have a huge reason to want to play it. But if you think your opponents might be slipping, not respecting aggressive decks enough, Rakdos Knights will get the job done. Gruel probably does a lot of the same stuff too, right? Yeah, I think I think any Ember Cleave deck checks this box. And I think Mono Red could probably fit in with this as well. Like I said, I've seen good Mono Red lists for sure. Yeah. It, so does, did Rakdos Knights get anything new or good that you think improved it at all? Or is it still just like, well, it was completely fine before and it's still completely fine? I didn't see any new cards in playing against it, and I didn't rebuild it. So I, I think it's still basically the same thing it was before. There's other Rakdos aggressive decks that certainly have gotten new tools, but as far as the hard knights build, no, I really don't think it got much. Well, let's talk about the other Rakdos decks. Sacrifice. These decks look cool, and they have certainly gotten some pickups. I don't know the names of any of them. I'm not even going to try. But Annex. Uh, there's like Annex is a good one. What about the thing that gets counters when something gets sacrificed? The two drop? Oh, no one's playing that card. It's fine. No, no, that card's good. I think that card is completely playable. But basically, they have more redundancy in their engines, more ways to benefit from sacrificing. I also think Claim the Firstborn is a card that's pretty good right now. And there's Woe Strider, which has absolutely impressed me. I started with four Claim the Firstborn, and I went down on that number. Okay. Just not finding the targets for it? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, so huh. uh, Slaughter Priest of Mogus is pretty good. Yep. I like that better yep. than... The two mana, one, one, red, two drop, whatever its name is. I'm never going to cast that card or put it in a deck, so I'm just never going to know its name. And Skip it. The other two drop I'm playing is Stormfist Crusader because I felt like if I just had enough resources, I could probably not lose. I would just find okay. a way to win the game, and I've been very happy with that. And then the Akron War at four as my only four mana card. A crow in war routinely blows me out. Just routinely, over and over. There's it's always busted. a Sasa on the opposing side of the battlefield somehow. I don't know how that combination has come to fruition, but th- that is probably the card that I am more frustrated about losing to than any other card. If you played that card in limited? No, but that's got to be just a mess. It's gross. It is absolutely yeah. gross. But yeah, in constructed, I mean... This is this is one of the reasons why I think I mean first of all Just Guy Fires was already like not that good but it also didn't get that many upgrades got some small upgrades mm-hmm. and cards like the Akron War just make it so they can no longer win the game. Hmm, I hadn't really considered that, but seems like a very good point. Akron War maybe with the sack outlet, maybe with not. You know, it, it just, it doesn't really matter. Maybe, maybe Thawset too, but yeah, this, this card really punishes like, oh, I'm going to put one big monster into play and it does right. that job very well. Yeah. Good pickup for the Rakdos Sacrifice deck for sure. Yeah. They, they have a ton of playable cards. I'm kind of interested in similarly to the, the whole, you know, I just need a bunch of resources thing. I'm interested in trying Gruesome Menagerie again because we actually have, a good amount of things at one, two and three mana and the, Mm -hmm. the four mana cards aren't super impactful or important or whatever outside of a grown war. So, uh, I mean, you can make a case for nightmare shepherd, but you're not getting as good use out of it as you would in like mono black devotion. So. Right. 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 
there's there's a lot of different cards and combinations to try. I'm sure there's like a more controlling deck and an even more aggressive deck, but this this deck's been fun, but solidly tier two. Like the the individual power level is just not there. Yeah, mostly with you. Have you tried any other red black builds, like the really bigger builds based around Croxa? Because boy, is that card not very good. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, man. I told you. Yeah. I mean, I said it when we did our top 10 show. Like, I, I was know. very concerned that it just might not check out. You you have to commit to it so hard. And the cards that do commit to it are just not that good. And maybe this will change. Because I, I do think, like, on pure power level, Croxa is there. The support staff is just... Vicious Rumors is not going to get the job done. I'm sad to report. I wanted to play a lot of decks with four Vicious Rumors not going to happen. Well, you need like Ox or Phoenix or Davriel or something. You know, you can't just play it as like a straight up one for one and hope it's going to be good because it's not. I I got all of them. This deck I worked on a bunch, which showed moments of promise, honestly. Like there there were bright points where you started to believe this could be a deck. It had Carnival Carnage. It had Vicious Rumors. It had Mire Triton to make sure that the graveyard was full all the time. It had Agonizing Remorse, Thrill of Possibility, Four Ox, four Croxa. So you have to think like all these cards are going to mush into something. And occasionally they would and opponent would do like one big thing and all of it would be meaningless. Right. So I I think that's the constraint that modern magic imposes on a deck like this. 10 years ago, this deck is a house. Yeah, four Ox and four Croxa is a lot of graveyard stuff. I saw your list with Meyer Triton. I was like, yep, yeah, he's, he's running out. Yeah, you do. I mean, one of the things about Ox is that it does a good job fueling the next Ox, and you are pretty happy to play it from your hand in this deck. You're not just trying to set up. Like, ideally, you are casting hand Oxes, graveyard Croxas, and then the game should be over very quickly from there. And it did mm. happen. It played out that way a good percentage of the time, but it's not good enough, quite frankly. Hand Ox is not something I really considered would be possible in a deck with Vicious Rumors because it just seemed like you were going to be expending a bunch of resources, you know, trading with bad cards from your opponent. And there was just no way that you could get to like five mana plus having this ox still. Well, sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't, Jerry. You take the good with the bad when it comes to ox. Out this, of the deck, hand. this deck really needs some treasure maps. Let me tell you. It, it needs something. It needs something. All right. Team or elementals. I never lose to this deck. It is can do powerful things occasionally and it starts to shine and it usually gets a game from me. And then I win the match because it has some consistency issues and no curve to speak of. It's all four drops. And because it is making the fatal mistake of playing Thassa four copies of Thassa at that. In most instances, I think maybe that number started to drop down occasionally, but a lot of Thassa and not, for Agent of Treachery. If Thassa is in your deck, you play for Agent of Treachery. That is my new rule, period. That's the way you build these decks. Do you force a lot? I think that's that's kind of a harsh no, rule. You want all four. No. All of them. I, all of them. Because you cast it, you win the game. You just win. That's it. It's over. There's nothing your opponent can do. Game's wrapped up. Move on to the next one. Let's go. I understand. I'm just saying that there is a case to be made for a slightly lower curve blue deck that may only consider playing three Agent of Treachery there is a case to be made, but the deck's not going to be good. And when you put the fourth one in magically, the win rate soars 10, 15% immediately. It's wild. Uh, you, you can't argue with math. 
Uh, I, I agree. That's Agent true. of Treachery Thos is like the best thing that you can be doing, especially when everyone is kind of doing these slow, dirtily mid-rangey things, you know, trying to figure out what cards are busted and everything. Teamer Elementals, for the most part, is trying to do cool Thassa things, but is basically only going to win games where it gets to control magic something. And if that doesn't really come together, and even sometimes when it does, you know, like you you just don't have a whole lot going on past that. And that's just not enough right now. People are going bigger than that. Yep. So, uh, Mono Blue Devotion, your four Asian of Treachery deck. Are you playing Nyx Lotus? Is this a playable magic card? I don't know. I honestly don't know. And I did play some like early mono blue devotion. It was clearly not good enough, like very clearly not good enough. What you were doing just didn't line up on power level. But now I'm like, well, what if I just put these four Asian of treachery in the deck? And I I don't know if that's actually realistic or not, but if you can accelerate that out with Nyx Lotus, maybe that is good enough and you'll start to actually have a late game that matters while still occasionally doing like brazen borrower type beat downs and this starts to be a deck that i could be interested in potentially i have to take a second look at this the early builds were not great though that's what i will say about mono blue devotion they have reasonable card quality but none of it really jams well together you know it's like okay Mm -hmm. i have this this cool gadwick but not really a whole lot of things to do on my opponent's turn i could play spectral sailor or ley line of anticipation and like try and make this thing work but is that actually worth it because you also have a bunch of like mana sinks in agent of treachery and just thassa itself uh and then there's brazen borrower which is mostly just like a tempo beatdown card and it doesn't seem like mono blue devotion really has that you have thassa's oracle yeah. which is just firmly in the wall camp you know so it is it is weird I don't know exactly what we're supposed to be doing. And if it's like not devotion related things, we can just put Thassa and Agent of Treachery in a deck with Gross Spiral. Right. That That's what I was going to go to is like, well, all these things put together are super mana intensive and okay, maybe you should just splash some growth spirals and then you can ramp a little bit, but that's like, what are we doing here? Why are we playing this deck anymore? There's so many better ways to ramp to a top end of Thassa. So the deck needs to find an identity. I think you're spot on. It's pulled in a lot of directions right now. Powerful stuff going on. Arcanist Owl is a cool magic card. I want to be able to blink this with Thassa and have it matter, but that's the problem is you would as- assemble that combo, that very difficult to assemble combo that takes four mana over multiple turns over and over, and it wouldn't matter. It just wasn't that good. Well, a part of the reason it's not that good is like, what are you blinking into, right? Like your your Thassa deck should very much be centered around combining Thassa with something that you can blink in hoping that that achieves victory, right? But like blinking an owl just gets you more witching wells or more owls or dead thosses or whatever it's like meaningless stuff yeah yeah you just keep drawing ham sandwiches it doesn't matter so try and try and do better things with your thossa you probably have to give up give up on owl in the deck in fact you want to give up on a bunch of the hard devotion payoffs and i bet that's where you start to get into something interesting so you're just playing good cards now right so you have like brazen borrower gadwick your Thassa's, your Agent of Treachery. So Thassa's going to turn on. It's going to go big, but you're not priced into all these other mediocre spots like Thassa's Oracle, which you're not winning game. We all want to win games with that card. It's not happening. It's 
quite frankly, just a bad card. So when you're focused on curving out to Thassa, it's not good enough. I want to see what other type of setups you can do when you're just like, okay, now I have an incidental Thassa that I've played my other game plan and this card is on now too. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, I think the deck probably has to be focused on making it a 6-5 and tapping their opponent's stuff. And the blink thing is cool, but there's not a ton that you can really lean into it with. So just do that. Yeah, you need some middle of the road blink payoffs, but ultimately they're just about advancing your bigger plan. So maybe you, you do just need to do like Fibblethip and make sure you're on the battlefield and hitting land drops. And I don't know, the, the whole deck needs a restructure. I will work on it. it. It is an idea that appeals to me, but not good now. Also worth noting that I think this is like Mono Blue Devotion is pretty firmly where like tier three lies. But again, the distance between tier two and tier three is really not that large. So yeah, Blue Devotion, probably fine at some point. Definitely has a lot of good cards available to it. We just need someone to actually build a good deck. I will take on that mission. You have assigned it to me. I will not let it go quietly. I will find a good Mono Blue Devotion deck. Godspeed. Uh, what about Thank Jeskai you. Fires? Can you find a good Jeskai Fires deck? Never could. So nothing has changed here. Still still don't like this deck. I think Thos is good in it, probably, but not enough to get me on board. There might be other Fires decks that are good. I'm not discounting Fires as a possibility, yep. but like you said, Cavalier of Gale, Gales, Cavalier of Flames, just not now. Not the right time for those cards. Yeah, agreed. You, I, I do think that... There is something you can be doing with fires, but it's not like play two giant monsters and attack your opponent. And it's certainly not that when your deck hinges on drawing fires and if you don't draw fires or they blow it up. And especially now, there's just so much enchantment removal and everything like mm -hmm. people. People are just going to be doing this now. Like They're just going to have like two to six ways of killing your fires. Like, how the hell are you going to win? There's also Elspeth Conquers Death, which kills everything in your deck literal like every card oh, yeah. you want to play yeah and it also slows down your next follow-up fires because now it's taxed on that <laughs> it's it's just it's just a mess it's brutal yeah and then you still have like the beatdown decks to contend with which you know you probably can't beat i, I imagine clothes is just game over right or heliod too for that matter probably tough to beat yeah heliod's messed up a lot of good sticky threats these days so Jeskai Fires gets as many thumbs down possible from us as it possibly could. Always does. But now even more so. Mm -hmm. All right. Next up, is it Phoenix? I think this deck might actually be good. You're going to have to tell me why. I haven't seen a build that impresses me yet. I understand there's some good cards for it, but I just don't have it yet. You kill their stuff. You draw some cards and then you attack them with oxes and phoenixes. Tale as old as time, classic magic. Sounds great, right? It feels it feels small ball, given everything else we're talking about. It is small ball. Uh, you you have to play more of a tempo-y game. I think Brazen Borrower probably fits into this archetype a decent amount now. And I think you just have to lean into that aspect of it. And then certainly there are matchups, like any sort of aggro matchup, you can just board into a pseudo-control deck and against you know, blue white control or Jun food or whatever, you can sort of become like, you know, this counter spell tempo deck. And I think that those plans are both somewhat flimsy, but that's the kind of magic I like playing. You know, it's like you need basically all your stuff to line up, but you still have like 
the the nutso phoenix draws you have like very quick ox draws potentially so like you're kind of doing powerful things like you're you're cheating on mana but you're not doing like the most busted stuff right but i don't know i feel like this is a a deck and strategy that has plans that can compete i hope those are found because i like when is it phoenix is part of the metagame i think it's a fun deck to play with and against i i just haven't seen it yet i hope you're right all right, that'll be my job. I'll have to break Phoenix. Okay. Move Good. move that thing up into tier two. Let's go. All right, three decks left. Golgari Adventures. This one fell off real quick. Don't see a reason to play this deck right now. Like nothing, actual nothing comes to mind. I am unclear what this does well. Agonizing Remorse, maybe? Like this is one of the decks that did need a two drop. People thought Pelucranos was going to be playable. I've yet to have someone play a Pelucranos against me. I thought about playing one in my green-black food deck just to try it, and then was like, no, I don't even want to. I I feel like I would just be disappointed. Yeah, I don't think that card's good. Very good in Limited. Played against it in Limited yet? Nah, I haven't seen that one yet. Oh, it's messed up. Messed up. There's a lot of messed up mythics and rares in this set for sure. Just end games. Well, mythics especially, but like rares, yeah. There's you know two to four or whatever, which is certainly higher than usual. My my limited experience has mostly just been like watching other people play. I built a sealed deck and did a draft, but have yet to play any games, which is basically how I interact with limited these days. Hmm. Yeah, I've seen you do that many times. I, I've enjoyed the limited format quite a lot. I've just been playing sealed. It, although it I already own, I own four of every card in the set already. So we're just throwing value away. I probably should hop over to Magic Online at some point if I'm going to keep playing sealeds, uh, or start up the alt. Yeah, I, I just don't see why. Like, I don't have a lot to do with an alt when it comes to arena. Like, maybe I can make a completely never buy packs alt. But what are, what are we doing here? I don't. I don't need to do that. Well, I mean, if you're just going to play limited casually, you can play it on another account where it feels like you're actually accumulating stuff instead of making you feel bad for losing out on this value, right? I guess so. But what's the end game? No, the, like now I have two accounts with every card. I mean, sure. Why not? Like if you don't have to spend a dime on the other one, what what good is it doing you on the first one? You're getting like some. Yeah, it's, it's probably a pittance in it's gems. It's probably better to have the gems. Yeah, it's probably better to have the small gem discount. Right, but in the meantime, your your mentality suffers, right? Because you're thinking about like how much you're spewing off. That is true. That seems I hate a spew. That seems way more worth it than a pittance of gems, but I don't know. Okay. The accounts are free to make, man. All you gotta do is get through that tutorial and you're golden. That's true. I lose to Sparky a lot there. I don't always make it through. Well, I, I didn't say you'd be able to get through it quick. Uh Mono Green Devotion. We kind of touched on this a little bit in regards to Simic Ramp and all of that. Is this a thing that you want to continue working on? I did like your list for whatever that's worth. I didn't necessarily think that you had to be mono green or anything, but you definitely found a lot of magic cards that I did not consider like the Thunder business deli happenings thing. Right. I am mostly over working on this, not because I don't think it has potential, but because the process of iterating on it isn't a lot of fun. Like it tends to be either you have something functional and you blow your opponent up or 
you have something non-functional, you sit there and die. And when you're iterating, your changes are far more apt to make something non-functional than functional. Mm. So there's a lot of really boring games of magic while tuning this. Sure. Uh, I am happy to give input to anyone who continues to work on it and thoughts, but it's unlikely I dive back in hard to this deck, although I do think it has potential. Have you tried any of the Leyline Abundance setups? Not. I mean, I, I did a lot with Leyline Abundance when the card came out, but I haven't gone back to it recently. And it's appealing. Like you certainly see the benefit of going down that road. I would have to think really carefully about what packages stay, what packages go. Something about like the four finale of devastation setup seems like a big upgrade to me. Like just always having access to one really alters the way you can play both the mid and late game. And the fact that you have a target that matters at seven in the form of Nyx Bloom Ancient, where getting that is often just as good as getting the bigger thing because you can then follow it up with some other huge thing. Right. It's interesting. There, there's something there for sure. Yeah. If, if uh, people have very little amounts of interaction or at least interaction on the things that are meaningful, then I think that this sort of deck could be good. Just, you know, like, any sort of Eldrazi ramp deck has tended to be good when you just end up going over the top of people. Right. And I've, I've already had setups with like the food decks where I'm doing my thing and I'm able to like kill some stuff and any normal deck certainly can't kill me. And then I just get finale for 10, they get four runners and I take a million, you know, and there's just nothing yep. that you can really do to stop that setup. And that is the advantage of playing a deck like this. So one thing I'll point out, like this is about finding the biggest end game possible. And that's the appeal of something like this. Right. The problem is that Thassa plus Asian of Treachery actually might comprise a bigger late game yeah, because of the way anyway. it interacts with this particular game. Yeah, you can just take their stuff and all this doesn't matter. And now you've outscaled them. So that that's the one sticking point where you may end up finding a worse version of the best late game. Fair enough. And the the last one is, is it Breach? And I'm not even sure that this is a tier four deck, to be honest, but Underworld Breach is a very stupid magic card. And I'm already not very happy that it got printed. And if it does things in standard, I'm also not very happy. I, I do not generally like cards that can only do broken things. What is the good scenario for this card? It inspires a flurry of deck building and fails. I think that's the best scenario. Oh, it is. And it the is. alternative yeah. is, yeah. So like, I, I don't know if that's like a goal you should strive for. It was probably well done with Thousand Year Storm. I think that card was like the perfect version of this, but it speaks to how you should try and do those type of cards. Like make them very expensive and make sure that there's always going, no matter how good Thousand Year Storm was, there was extremely hard checks on it that could show up at any time. Right. If there is a good, is it breach deck, it might just be broken. And that is a scary, scary thing to potentially let loose. And its impact on legacy vintage. I mean, in general, I'm okay with letting those formats police themselves and figure it out. But it's just hard to imagine this card having a positive effect on the game of Magic overall. That's where I stand on it. Yeah. What I mean, what about Modern and Pioneer? Like the card's already showing up there too. And it's just like, why? Why does this exist? 
there, there's some space in Pioneer for like interesting combo decks, I think, but this is unlikely to be an interesting one if it's good. It's likely to just be busted and require Leyline of the Void in the main deck is where we head again. And we've learned our lesson about what those formats look like. Looking forward to the inevitable hidden strings ban in Pioneer. Too good. Oh, geez. That might be the most unexpected one ever. I, I do notice as we look over our list, Jerry, we skipped a tier two one. Oh, we should double back. Oh, what did I we, skip? Both, we both like it. We skipped Orzov Enchantments. Oh, yeah. I'm writing about that this week, actually. Oh, you're trying to keep all the tech for your article. I see. Yeah, clearly. Not letting our listeners in on it. No, I, I, this deck is good. It is I've good. I've been impressed by Orzov Enchantments. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the games against Blue Eye Control are very fun. I talk about that a decent amount in the article where. You know, they have counter spells, you have discard and castle Lockthwain, and it sort of feels like you have them dominated, but you know, you're just going back and forth, like trading resources, drawing cards. Yeah. yeah, it's it's super fun. Yeah. And the aggro decks can sometimes just like get under you, kick the crap out of you, but if you go like Oath of Kai into Wrath, you're fine. And green decks can really go over the top of you. I don't think I could ever beat an agent of treachery in a million years, but other than that, yep. like I mostly just like this deck against everyone. It's pretty solid. I think this deck is favored against everyone except Blue Green, where it's a massive, massive underdog. And I don't know how that type of position is going to hold for the entirety of the format. Right. Like being soft to Blue Green seems like, especially right now, it's obviously a bad place. As time goes on, maybe that becomes safe and you can just do this reliably. I like that. I like this deck a lot. I think it's fun to play. As you mentioned, I've played both sides of this versus blue-white, and it's interesting from both sides. There's a ton of decisions decisions to be made. The games feel so, so close where it can always break either way and generally comes down to the top of the deck. So I love that style of magic being part of the game again. Doom Foretold has a lot to do with that. You know I have affinities for that card. Has me has a tournament win for me. Although I did remark that that Esper Dance of the Man's deck might be the worst deck I ever won a tournament with. But oh, still, dude, nice. I did win, and therefore, I will forever love Doom Foretold. And it's good to see it making roads into the format again. We've got to get some uh, borderless Doom Foretolds for you to sign and send out to the, the Mox Diamond patrons. That's a good idea. I, I have one already. I opened it in one of my collector boosters. I might have so one, that too. that could be one of the things that... Okay, so a couple of those will go out next time we do mailings for our Mox Diamond boosters. If you're not familiar with that tier, you can go look at our tiers over on Arena Decklist, or excuse me, patreon.com slash Arena Decklist. You'll see all the tiers there. Our top tier, we send out some signed cards to our patrons every few months. We try and find unique, fun ones that we have a particular affinity to. Every every GP or Magic Fest I go to, I, I walk around the venue and try and buy all the Faithless Looting, Shardless Agents, and Nether Spirits I possibly can. Great approach. Great <laughs> approach. Maybe Doom Foretold will be the thing that I will load up on for the rest of time. Yeah, man, dude, I like that. It's like a, it's like a dollar card. It's just, it's so good. It's the perfect thing to send people. Get to play it in standard. Love it. Yeah, I mean, it's playable. It is a beloved, fun card. It is iconic and associated with you. So it's great. Nailed it. All right, so... What do we have for a question this week, Brian? So, of course, every week we head to our Discord and we pull a question from one of our beloved patrons. For a while, I was also answering all the questions we got submitted on YouTube, but I set forth an ultimatum last week and you all failed. 
nobody came and watched it. So that's it. You're all being punished. I'm not doing it this week. Maybe I'll go back to it in the future. How many views? Y'all have been bad listeners. Oh, it's pathetic. It was like 800 views and I wanted like 4,000. So y'all are done. And I'm angry with everyone listening to this podcast right now, except David Crago, who has asked our question this week. And David wants to know something about this set seems to have really resonated with a ton of people. What do you think it has in common with past sets that have also been highly positively received? And what has this set done that you want to see more of? And I agree with David. I have been over the moon about this set thus far. Yeah. I mean, for us, it's mostly just like, oh, what is good in constructed? What are the possibilities? And this set certainly delivers on that, right? Like there is a wide variety of playable cards. The power level is relatively flat. You know, we don't have any sort of Okos or anything that I can tell for standard. So a lot of different deck archetypes that we can build around, which hopefully came through on this cast. And it seems like that is the case for basically everyone. Like someone has latched on to a different part of this set that they are super excited about. But even outside of just the constructed playability, it's I, I think you just have like a lot of things for people to get excited about. You have Devotion, which encourages people to play monocolored decks or near monocolored decks. You have like an enchantment sub-theme. You have the Return of Sagas. You have these Titans. You have escape might be like a little bit lower on that totem pole but like then there's the flavor i think there's just a lot of things for people to be excited about and they just delivered on all of them when 2019 was coming to a close i talked about my thoughts about the year in retrospect as they related to magic and obviously 2019 is going to go down as a very problematic year in magic's history But the one thing I noted was that despite the power level problems in Oko, in Field of the Dead, in Once Upon a Time, all of the sets released did an incredible job at getting me excited to play Magic with the cards that I was being shown. Like I wanted to know what this card could do. I wanted to see how I could maximize it immediately upon the release of the full spoiler I would just start building decks furiously all throughout 2019. And only this really problematic power level ever set me back and really dampened that enthusiasm. And my takeaway was that as bad as the power missteps were, and you can't brush those under the rug, they were problematic, they were severe missteps. But if Magic's card design is still getting me excited every single set, I actually think that is a far more important indicator of the overall health of the game. They're doing a phenomenal job at creating cards that I can't wait to build decks around. And Theros is that to a T without those problematic power spikes and those really, really unfun play patterns that we saw previously. Thus far, there's always room for that to go wrong. And I don't, you know, if it's three months down the road and then someone plays this for me and I feel like a fool, it wouldn't surprise me. Things can always break in unexpected ways. But the only like really squeezing interaction I've seen thus far is like a lot of games against Thassa can feel hopeless, but in a good way. And Thassa is an answerable card. And there's things like Revoke Existence and Banishing Light and Elspeth Conquers Death. And I realize I just listed three white cards, which is kind of messed up. But <laughs> there's ways to play around these cards. They, but that's, the that's card another thing four, to be happy about three. too. 
It is. It is. Given what White did in 2019, I do think that's a big thing to be happy about. So I just think this is continuing the trend of designing really fun, really exciting magic cards, but without the problematic power level that has plagued the last few sets. Right. And the the setting matters and the manner in which those cards are delivered matters. Like I said, sagas, titans, things of that nature, those things mm. are cool. Sagas are great, man. I love sagas so much. I'm still not sure how I feel about them. Oh, I just, I'm over the moon. I love playing with them. I love playing against them. I love the way they look. I love the alternate art styles it opens up. Like They are one of the biggest hits over the last few years for me. The, the art stuff is rad. I definitely like that. I can, I can say that without mm-hmm. a doubt. I'm, I'm still undecided whether or not I like this thing sitting there and I know what it's going to do for the next four turns. Like that's, It's just not super fun for me, I guess. Like I, I would like there to be a little bit more hidden information, I suppose. Don't you think they did a good job, though, of like adding unique twists to the sagas in oh, this yeah. set? Like something like Metamized Prophecy is a really good example that there's a lot of fertile design space here and interesting stuff you can still do, no, I, even with predictable information on the battlefield. I think the actual card design for sagas was much better this time around. Like they clearly learned yeah. from the first go around and iterated on that a lot and found a lot of designs that are like playable and fun and make sense. And we're seeing a lot of these pop up and constructed, which we didn't really see the first time around. And I think there's a pretty big reason for that. So yeah, they, they definitely nailed it. And that, that's the sort of thing that makes me hopeful for the future, right? It's like very clearly they care about iterating on the process and getting better and everything. Right. Agreed. Yeah, man. I don't know. It just sits there and I kind of know what's going to happen over the next three turns. It kind of stinks. But Metamized Prophecy can reveal literally anything off the top of your opponent's deck. Yeah, and then you know what they're going to draw. It's stupid. No, but you didn't until you looked at it. New information. Uh, Dude, I don't get it. That's game. Good luck.